Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Hello, hello, hello. This is Kirk Peter filling in for my good friend Terry Wickstrom on 104.3 The Fan. You know, this is a great, great time of year for those of us who enjoy the outdoors because there's so much going on. I've got friends right now in elk camps. I've got friends out in goose pits. I've got friends um, chasing upland birds and so on and so forth. But I've also got friends who are kind enough to stay inside and call me on the radio. And that would include my friend Tucker Ladd. Uh, Tucker's the owner of Trout's Fly Shop here in Denver. He's also the owner of uh, Trout's in Frisco. He's a longtime fly angler and good friend of mine. Tucker, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kirk. How you been, man? I've been very well. How about yourself? I'm, I'm good, good, good. It's a, it's a good good way to start a Saturday is talking to someone that you know and fished with a lot. And one of the things I want to touch on is that with all this going on this time of year, we almost think that those of us who like fly fishing so much, uh, you know, kind of hang up the rods and the waders and we sulk and tie flies. But that's not the case, is it? There's an awful lot going on still. You know, fly fishing is one of those pastimes that's so unique because it offers such, uh, you know, just endless possibilities, particularly in Colorado. I mean, we're fortunate that, you know, we have a 365-day season here. We don't, we're not limited by, by river closures. So it's a great time to get out on the water. And one of my favorites, just because there's just the lack of people and the, the fish are still hungry. Yeah, you know, you hit it on the head there because it's also a time when people can't really plan long in advance. In other words, you see the weather forecast it might be 65 degrees one day and 16 the next so it's kind of a time for us locals to pick and choose when we're going to go out and enjoy things um if you were to go out and fish say you've got a bluebird day coming up next week or so are there a few places that you might recommend for people to hit i mean you know this is tailwater season as i like to call it i mean the the freestone river so anything that doesn't have a dam or reservoir ahead of it or upstream of it are going to be a little bit on the the frozen icy side of things so, you know, the South Platte River drainage is a really good one for this time of year for people close to the Denver Front Range. Um, you've got the Blue River, you know, right outside of Silverthorne, which is near our Frisco location. Uh, the Williams Fork was always one of, is, is, is another good one that I've enjoyed uh, encountering, or frequent, I should say, during the winter months. Um, so really, I mean, there's, you know, you've got the, the, uh, the Arkansas River below Pueblo Reservoir, um, which is a great front range stream. You know, you get really nice weather down in that section. And then you've got other places like the frying pan or the tailor if you want to go target some really big trophy trout. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's really just lots and lots of possibilities. And then, you know, depending on what the weather is going to be, you know, you might find some sections of the Colorado, the Eagle, um, the Roaring Fork that will be fishable this time of year as well. That's great. You know, I had a goal last year, and I actually accomplished it, but I wanted to catch – a trout on a dry fly in every month of the season. And admittedly, January and February were a little harder than others, but you'd be surprised. I mean, most people would be surprised. Uh, we're very lucky having this warm southwest climate that allows us to have hatches and different things going on uh, throughout the season, as you said. Uh, are there some special bugs or equipment or you know things that gear advice that you would give somebody who might want to get out there within the next month or so? You know, you just got to think small this time of year. You know, there's not a ton of insect life going on in the river, so mostly you're going to be limited to midges. 
Um, some, you know, blueing olives and betas and during the, you know, certain times of day, the weather gets a little bit warmer. So the nice thing is that, you know, in terms of the, the menu looking, you know, for the fish, it's a pretty limited selection right now. So, you know, fishing with like an attractor pattern, like an egg, a worm, um, a scud pattern or a mysis shrimp, if you're say on the, you know, like the frying pan or the Taylor river or the blue river, which has mysis shrimp that, that it'll flow into it. Um, and then, you know, small, small bugs, you know, you're going to be fishing things that are size 18 to 24 this time of year. So it's small flies, really small tippet. You know, I'm a bit big advocate of just fishing normal monofilament during the, the course of the season. But once we get into the winter months, fluorocarbon becomes a really big deal. Um, and then, you know, softer rods, you don't need, you know, a big six way to, you know, huck a giant streamer 50 feet, something in the that's going to be a little bit softer, a little bit more presentation oriented. It's going to be, you know, it will do you a lot of favors. You know, we're talking about these techniques and so forth, and I wanted to take a step back real quick and, and acknowledge that now is also a good time to get into the sport. You know, I've talked to a lot of people who said, gee, I, I've always wanted to fly fish, but I, I've never really figured out how to do the cast or how to tie the knots or those types of things. Well, in the wintertime, you, I know for sure, and your shop and, and the people that work with you do a lot of clinics and events and, and, and things that can help bootstrap somebody who wants to get into the sport of angling. Isn't that so? Oh, absolutely. I mean, just because the weather turns a little bit colder and the snow starts falling doesn't mean that we're, you know, hanging up our, our rods and, and we're done for the season. Um, you know, as long as it just necessitates, you know, some warmer clothing, um, a little bit different technique and gear, but it's a phenomenal time to get into it. Um, so, yeah, we offer, you know, beginner classes through the course of the, the off season. We do a lot of fly time, fly casting, um, you know, come January, early January, we've got the fly fishing show, which is going to come to Denver. You've got the international sportsman's expo that comes through town, the fly fishing film tour. Um, we do our own throwback fly fishing film fest in February of every year. So there's a tremendous amount of angling and opportunities, whether it's on the river or something where it's just, you know, giving you something to do on a weekend or a, or a Wednesday. That's right. And it's a lot of, quite a culture here in the, the front range and in the Denver area specifically, a lot of flying. I, I think I read somewhere that we have the highest percentage per capita of fly anglers of anywhere in the world here, which is, uh, I, I don't I'm, I'm, I, the statistics I've always heard is that there's more, you know, fly fishing dollars that move through the Denver front range than anywhere else in the, the lower 48 or if not the world. So no, it's a, we're, we're a hotbed of fly fishing for sure. And it's just all due to the fact that we have so many angling opportunities that are within such a short distance of Denver or really anywhere. I mean, you know, if I look at Denver, we've got the South Platte River, you've got Clear Creek, Bear Creek, South Boulder Creek. If you want to go a little bit further north, you've got the Big Thompson, you've got the Pooter. Um, so those are just rivers that are flowing east from the Continental Divide. If you go up to our Frisco location, you know, you could go in any direction, 360 degrees, and you've got the South Platte, you've got the Blue, the Colorado, the Williams Fork, the Eagle, the Roaring Fork. I mean, there's just such a plethora of angling opportunities that are within a short distance of, of driving, and you really don't see that anywhere else. I mean, if you look at Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, I and mean, these are all iconic angling states, but, you know, they've got big major rivers that are, you know, hours apart, whereas Denver, we've got smaller streams that are just as proficient and effective in, in, in quality, but with just a lot less time driving. So you can hit a lot of different things in one day. 
Um, it also allows us that, you know, it, for the winter months, there's just a lot of different options. I mean, we've got more tailwaters in Colorado uh, that were within a, a three-hour drive of Denver than most states have, you know, in, in, you know, entirely. Amen to that. That's And that's the beauty of it. And, you know, getting back on the commerce side of things, I'll let the audience know that, Tucker, you were the former chairman of the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, and then last month we had – the industry trade show come to Denver, come back to Denver for the first time in several years. It was a it was a great homecoming of sorts. The show set attendance records, it sent exhibitor records, there were new products showcase and all that stuff. I just wondered if if you saw some products there or you got a general vibe or feel or for what it was like to have that come back to Denver. You know, it was fantastic. I mean, we, for so many years, we were the closest fly shop to, you know, in the world to this show. And then we followed it through New Orleans and Reno and over to Orlando and Las Vegas. Um, so it was really tremendous to have it back and, and see the, just get that general vibe and, and just energy from, from fly fishing being, you know, back home in Denver. In terms of gear, you know, one of the companies that we're really excited about is Ross and Abel. They're both real manufacturers based out of Montrose, Colorado. Um, Ross uh, re-released, I would say, the the San Miguel fly reel, which was personally one of my, you know, all-time favorites. And it's been about, oh gosh, probably 15 or 20 years since they last made the San Miguel. And so it was really cool to see that reel come back out. G. Loomis had the NRX Plus, which was you know, was going to replace their NRX series, which has been an iconic fly rod in the industry. And Lewis is, you know, really a kind of a, a sleeper company that not a lot of people know about them. You know, when they think Loomis, they think Shimano, they think conventional fishing. But man, G. Loomis makes some really, really underrated fly rods. And that NRX Plus is one that we're super excited about. Um, personally, I'm really excited about the Sage LL. Uh, you know, that, the, the light line was, a, was a, a very memorable fly rod that they made a number of years ago to sort of see something like that come back out. So it's really kind of this year seems to be the year of, hey, let's look back and, and what we did best 20 years ago and how can we improve upon that. Um, so it's cool to see that they're not, you know, fly fishing is one that there's only so many technical advancements that can be made in fly fishing and fly rods. So to see these companies say, hey, let's look at what we did well in the past and how we can improve upon that. Um, it's been a pretty cool trend that we're seeing moving forward. Yeah, I'd add, I'd add to that trend. I, I think a lot of people are jumping on the cause-related marketing bandwagon, too. And one of the uh, Able reels that are coming out, uh, Ross, actually, it's uh, an Animus reel branded specifically um, in, a, in a green color, special green color. And they're earmarking some of the money uh, that goes directly into Trout Unlimited and what they're doing to you know, help the animus be, be as healthy as it can be as it's a really important river in southwestern Colorado and you can get those reels through the fly shops you know and, and um, so the fly shop wins the company wins conservation wins and the angler wins in, in the in the whole scheme of things so that's all pretty good stuff I think there's a lot more of that coming down the pike well I sure hope so because let's face it I mean we are a resource-based you know recreation activity we depend on rivers to be able to do what we love to do so you know, trout fly fishing, our mantra has always been, you, we've got to give back. Um, we've got a slogan that, that we, you know, follow on a daily basis called Endorsed by Mother Nature. And really, I mean, we've got to give back. So, you know, trout fly fishing has always been a huge proponent of conservation, particularly Trout Unlimited. You know, in 2019 alone, we've raised over $20,000 that we've given back to Trout Unlimited through various events that we've run. So, 
you know, giving back, you know, supporting the resource. We've all got to be better stewards of the land. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, that's awesome. And thank you for that. You know, I got about another minute to go and and I wanted to um, touch on another subject. I'm seeing more and more um, momentum behind women anglers and um, more products specifically for women and more outings specifically for women. And, you know, we, as a couple of guys who fly fish, we, you know, we've been part of the the demographic that's often associated with it, but I, I see it getting younger and I see it getting a lot more diverse. Do you? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the beauty of fly fishing from my perspective is it's, I mean, my customers are nine years old and 90 years old. So, I mean, it spreads so many different spectrums and generations. And now we're starting to see more, you know, youthful women getting into it. And it, it's, it's very exciting to see, um, you know, I mentioned the Denver fly fishing show and the fly fishing show, this past January, I, I mean, the number of young women walking around the show floor was was very noticeable, and it's very encouraging to see that we are a sport that are becoming more diversified, and it's we're attractive to a, a number of different demographics, and you know, seeing women get into the sport, seeing you know, momentum and, and initiatives like the fifty fifty. Uh, campaign by Orvis. I mean, it's it's cool to see that we're not only you know reaching out, but you know trying to offer products, services, and experiences that are going to attract that demographic as well. Well, for sure. Hey, listen, man, man, I I I need to thank you so much. It, it meant a lot to me that you'd come on the air right off the bat and get this thing rolling this morning. If anyone wants to learn a little bit more about fly fishing, Tucker is a, a good source, and Trout's is the place to do it. So, Tucker, thanks a lot for hanging in here with me. Kirk, thanks for having me. I look forward to doing it again sometime. All right, buddy. We'll do that again. Okay. Off we'll go, and we will come back in a few, and we'll be following up on an interesting topic about why you don't really want to attract big game near your house, especially this time of year. All right, everybody. This is Kirk Dieter. In for my good buddy Terry Wickstrom on the Terry Wickstrom Outdoors Show, 104.3 The Fan in Denver. And I'm joined now by Dave Carr, who's hatcheries manager. And apparently we've had a very good banner kokanee hatch. Is that right? That is correct. We had a really great year. And what, what, would, it, what would account for that? Well, uh, we had some lakes come on really strong that haven't uh, really been strong in the past. Uh, the really good example is Wolford Reservoir this year. They took a record number of eggs there this year. I think they did four and a half, a little over four and a half million there. And the kokanee population just seems to be doing really well in that reservoir. So they were able to do a, a really strong spawn there. That's awesome. And backing things up a little bit for someone like my mom who's listening in, could you maybe help us understand what kokanee are by definition and so on and so forth? Yeah, so kokanee are actually the landlocked version of sockeye salmon. So basically, they're um, they're almost identical to sockeyes, except for the fact that they can't get access to the ocean. So instead of running to the ocean, a lot of times kokanee salmon will use uh, natural inlets to larger lakes and reservoirs. Um, the Spawning run kind of acts the same way as if they were running from salt water into fresh, but instead they just run from sort of the pelagic areas of the uh, the lakes and reservoirs upstream. So they're technically not anadromous fish in that they go to salt and back, but they're akin to, say, the coho and Chinook salmon that are in the lakes, Great Lakes, for example, that will run that's up a, that's a 
that's a really great analogy. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so now the fact that we've had a good, you know, hatch and, and we're looking outlook so far. This this you, we were talking the other day. This doesn't necessarily mean hot times in the old town in March or June. This is something that's got a two or three year cycle, right? Right. Yeah. Um, Coconut are just like every other salmon, and a lot of people might recognize the fact that salmon run up river one time and they spawn and they die. Um, it's a three-year cycle. They're not like uh, other trout that every spring or every fall they go through a, a spawning pattern, but it takes them several years to mature and to reach spawning age. So the fish that we stocked back in, uh, I suppose it would be 2015 or 2016 now, are actually the ones that showed up this year and provided the really good spawning numbers for us. Well, that's that's great news. And I, I would assume that this is also a reflection of a lot of factors, right? Good weather, good water, good management, good timing, and good luck. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's probably, it's probably hard to peg down any one factor, um, especially considering the fact that the spawn happened in several different uh, lakes and reservoirs. So there's probably different factors that contributed to uh, why the spawn was good in different places. And, yeah, that could be any number of things. It could be good water year. It could just be um, a strong year class that was really successful in finding, you know, forage or a, a good habitat where they were stocked or any number of things. So is there a reciprocal um benefit for other species you know there are places like oh blue mesa where um some of the lake trout might like to have smaller kokanee in there as well as a food source and so forth so is there do you think that this is going to be a benefit that spins out in a number of different ways yeah um blue mesa is a pretty good example there because the kokanee do definitely provide a, a prey base for the, the really large lake trout in that lake um and then kokanee also fills sort of an interesting biological niche in that they inhabit really open areas of the lake, and they can utilize the um, the food source that's out in open water in ways that a lot of times other trout and other cold water species can't. So they add sort of an interesting trophic level to uh, a lot of a lot of bodies of water that would other otherwise not be very productive. Great, and. What what else should we be on the lookout for? Um, is, it, is this something that um, you can predict is going to happen again and again, or should we just count our blessings and, and think that you know anything can happen next year? Is this, are we? In other words, are we trending in, in the right direction? Do you think? Um, that's a really boy. I, I know a lot of aquatic biologists in this state that would love to be able to predict that answer year in and year out. Sure. Um, that's that's a that's a tough question to answer, and certainly um, the the aquatic bios are out there looking at populations and doing their population estimates and surveys and things. But uh, one thing I have I have learned over the years that I've been doing hatchery work is there are times when uh, just not as many fish show up uh, for whatever reason, and those those factors are, are difficult to predict a lot of times. Well, uh, that being said, it's really it, it's good that our hatcheries were able to take in large numbers of eggs because that at least does give us the ability to stock out a lot of fish and at least, you know, give a give a good starting point. Well, 
Congratulations to you. I didn't mean to put you on the spot on that one, but congratulations on what happened this year to you and all the others who are involved with all of that. And we appreciate being brought into the loop, and uh, we'll catch you next time with the, the next report. All right. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll take another quick break here and then be back. This is Kirk Dieter filling in for my good friend Terry Wickstrom on the Terry Wickstrom Outdoor Show, 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in part by Sun Enterprises, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. You know, it wouldn't be the Terry Wickstrom Outdoors Show if there wasn't eagles on the bumper music, right? So I had to do that. I mean, it wasn't my call. Kyle did that for you, Terry, but uh, it's good to be in this chair. Kirk Dieter filling in for my good friend, Terry Wickstrom. And we have a number of other good guests coming up on the show today. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that. But, uh, you know, the funny thing about being in the outdoors, and I've learned over the years, is just how connected things are. And you, you end up going to a place and having a great experience. And I, I've gotten to the point in my career where, I remember less the fish or the the elk or the animals or any of that and more the people that I'm with as I'm going and, and doing these things. And some of the people that are on the show later today are people that go way back. And the next guest coming up in a few minutes is Chris Hunt, whom I met years ago. He was doing a, a, um, a program to help with Trout Unlimited helping the Wyoming range, and I was given a call by the late, great Charlie Myers, who was my mentor and the outdoors editor for the Denver Post. And he said, Dieter, we're going to Wyoming. Not do you want to go to Wyoming? It's we're going to Wyoming because this is a story we need to cover. He for the Denver Post and me for Field and Stream magazine. And we did. We drove together across the dry wash in Wyoming and up into the Wyoming range. And we were met at the door of the place where we were staying by Chris Hunt. And that was my first introduction, and we've remained close friends and worked on a number of projects um, for years and years after that. So that's about, what, 12, 13 years ago that that happened. So looking forward to catching up with Chris because he's written a book, Catching Yellowstone's Wild Trout. And a lot has been written about Yellowstone for sure, but I don't know that I've ever been with anyone who's just been as deeply rooted and spends so much of their free time and delves into the history and respects the nuance of the ecosystem quite the way that Chris does. And then top of the hour, we'll be talking to Nate Zielinski, who is, you know, the, the guy in this area. And especially um, when it comes to things like pike and walleye and so forth. But now, of course, seasonally, we need to be talking about ice fishing. And I want to talk to him about when and where and all that stuff, but also, you know, how we know when we're safe and what kind of things we use and all that. Then I'm really, really, really excited in 10, 15 or thereabouts. I'm going to be talking to Russell Miller. Russ is another old contact, good friend of mine, but Russ, it turns out, is on Team USA fly fishing. So he's going to be going to Tasmania in a couple weeks to compete. And last year I was in Tasmania at this time. And I got to tell you, folks, it was – it was the most extraordinary fly fishing experience I've ever had in my life. It was beautiful, big, wild brown trout. This is the first place where brown trout were taken from England. And uh, now there they are in Tasmania, and you're fishing, and there's uh, wallabies jumping all around and so forth. So lots and lots to go on. But um, I'm going to try to 
bring Chris Hunt in now. I, 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 Chris, did you just call in and surprise me? I figured I'd show up a little bit early, you know, just for grins. Well, you know, here I was rolling on a good monologue here, filling some space, kicking some, you know, <laughs> doing my radio thing, and you come and crash the party. What's going on, bud? Well, I have the perfect voice for newspapers, so I figured I'd give <laughs> I give the radio thing a shot. So since I have the, I have the perfect face for radio, and you've got the perfect voice for newspapers, this should work out just great. So, I was just telling everybody how we're old buds and this and that, and and so I, I was lying. I was ex- telling people that I actually <laughs> like you, but I do respect you. Uh, and I do like you, but I do respect you as one of the, the best voices in writing and fly fishing and be that in the blogosphere or in, in hard copy and print. And you've got a new book out that's called Catching Yellowstone's Wild Trout. And uh, I just think it's aces, man. I think it's the, the, the most comprehensive and informative, but not textbooky. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a good page turning read, too. So tell us a little bit about your book. Well, first, thanks, Kirk. I appreciate that, and I, I appreciate the opportunity to to talk about it. And um, and you're right. It, uh, the whole idea was not to create just another guidebook, another, as you put it, textbook on Yellowstone. There's been <laughs> plenty of that over the years. Um, what I wanted to focus on more than anything else was Yellowstone's fish. Um, and not only the native fish, but the, uh, you know, the, the introduced trout that we all love and cherish now and kind of where they came from yeah, and, uh, when they got there. Um, well, I noticed in the title, it's it's Yellowstone's wild trout, right? So that's a huge distinction that people interchange, you know, but that's an important thing. Right. We're not talking about, um, well, you know, if, if it was just native trout in Yellowstone, we'd only have two species of salmonids, maybe, well, technically three. We'd have cutthroat trout, we'd have Arctic grayling, and we'd have mountain whitefish, and that would be it. There would be no browns, brookies, rainbows, lake trout, etc. cetera, um, which isn't to say that having those, those non-native trout in the park is necessarily a good thing in all instances, but, um, you know, they've been in the park now for the better part of 130 years. So they're kind of part of Yellowstone, whether, whether we like it or not. Um, well, they're part of fishing culture in the United States, right? Yeah. I'm a kid who grew up. It's funny. I just heard, I just heard you talking about Tasmania and that that's where the first uh, brown trout were introduced outside of Europe. That's right, and the and, first, um, first brown trout were introduced in the United States in the river where I learned to fish, which is the Baldwin River in Michigan. And so, right, and that right. same dang fish has led me all to four corners of the planet right now. And, you know, gosh, I, I don't like it when people don't <laughs> say nice things about brown trout anymore. <laughs> well, uh, you know, brown trout are, you know, for better or for worse, part of the um, the fishing tapestry, not just in Yellowstone, but in a lot of our great public lands landscapes, you know, from Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, um, you know, throughout the, throughout the West and throughout, frankly, throughout the country. I mean, there are, there are brown trout in Valley Forge, you know, where Washington spent the winter. (laughs) Um, But the browns in Yellowstone are a unique uh, 
strain of brown trout now um, that's just completely accidental. Two different strains of brown trout were introduced in the park, um, one from Loch Leven in Scotland <clears throat> and the other from from Germany, the Von Baer strain of brown trout. That strain of trout is, is named after a, uh, the director of the German Fish Commission back in the late 1800s. He was a baron, and he loved fishing, and he loved brown trout, so he actually cultured a unique strain of brown trout. This is 150 years ago. Yeah. Um, and then that unique strain of brown trout was brought into Yellowstone. And both of those two strains, one Scottish strain and one German strain, were introduced into the fire hole and the Gibbon River drainages. Now, for those of you who don't know <clears throat> sort of the, the the geography of Yellowstone, the fire hole and the Gibbon come together at Madison Junction, and that is the headwaters of the Madison River. That's right. That's right. And I actually want to get into some of some of that in as well, because you know, truth be told, you're you're from here. You're from Denver, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, I grew up in Littleton. Yeah, grew up in Littleton, and now you're you're up in Idaho Falls, and right. spent a lot of time in the park and so forth. But like, you've always been captivated by Yellowstone itself. It's 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 just kind of a, and I have been too. You know, it's one of those places where they could blindfold you. Put you in a helicopter, fly you someplace, and drop you off, and leave you there, and you'd kind of know you were in Yellowstone, right? Just, yeah, it's, it's hard to miss. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to miss. So, for someone who says, though, gosh, they see the pictures of the uh, the slowed down traffic and uh, the t- tourists, <laughs> and you know, we we joked we were in Yellowstone together several years ago, and we really still have a plan to try to put you in a Bigfoot suit and walk out in the field someplace to see how many people will slow down and, and try to take your picture. Um, if you're still, I still think that. it's a brilliant idea. And of course we had that idea after, you know, we, we might possibly have been drinking a little bit of brown liquor, but it was still, <laughs> I still think it's an excellent idea that um, I think both of us, or at least, at least the guy in the Bigfoot suit would probably get arrested. Oh yeah. <laughs> we're, we're a lot older and smarter. Anyway, to the, to the crowds and the, whatever, the thing of it is, is that, you know, Yellowstone is so big. The more I learn and the more I read your book and other things that, like, you can get way off the beaten path and not see anybody at all if you wanted to with just a little yeah. bit of effort. Um, Yellowstone gets about four, four million-ish visitors every year, um, making it one of the busiest national parks in the country. But um, truth be told, and, you know, the old saying is you could – tie a rope around the waist of the average visitor and tie the other end of the hundred foot rope to the bumper of their car and they would never stretch it tight. That's right. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's really great if you're an angler in Yellowstone because with just, you know, just a few steps, you're away from everybody. Um, it is regardless of the amount of people who travel that grand loop road, when you're on a trail, two miles off the pavement, you are literally in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there is, your chances are, especially if you're fishing or following a blue line up some, you know, up a creek somewhere, you're probably not going to see anybody else. And you're probably not going to see anybody else fishing for sure. Um, it is, yeah, I I don't know. I, I've I fished all over the world, you know, a lot like you, Kirk. I'm actually headed to Patagonia in a couple of weeks, and I'm really excited about it, but Every year when the park opens, the fishing season opens the last Saturday in 
in May, the last Saturday before Memorial Day, is one of my favorite times of the year. And I'm, if I'm not in the park on that day, I'm in the park shortly after. And it, you know, it's just one of those places where, um, it's, there's no place else in the world like it, especially if you're an angler. Yeah. You know, you can't fish anywhere else in the world and, you know, look behind you and have a herd of bison crossing the Firehole River 20 feet from you. That's right. That's you know? It's amazing. It gives kind of gives you goosebumps thinking about it. And I have so yeah. many, you know, you collect pictures. And, again, I was saying earlier that fishing to me is less about the fish and more about the people and the places and the things you see. But certainly the the people that I've been in Yellowstone with and the things I've seen in Yellowstone are the, are some of the most indelible of all. Yeah. For sure. So, hey, it I want to. Yeah. I, I want to definitely get back on your book. Like, people can find um, Catching Yellowstone's Wild Trout at Fly Shots. They can order it on Amazon. It's, it's, a, it's a really nice, um, you know, whether you plan on going this year or next, it's something that should be in the library, I think, of every angler. Because Yellowstone is so iconic. So, that's my two cents. But I'm going to switch on to another book. Uh, a book that we're working on together. We are going to co-wrote, co-write the little black book of fly fishing, which is the sequel to the little red book of fly fishing that Charlie Myers and I wrote. Um, and that came out in 2010. And the little black book will be Kirk Dieter and Chris Hunt. And it's going to be the same cut size, same format, simple tips, so forth. But black meaning more like black diamond a little bit more expert amped up and so on and so forth so the funny thing chris with me is and it seems to me it's full circle that uh, you would be partnering with me and thank you for doing that on that book because uh, charlie introduced us and i think it's a it's a natural progression that's right yeah, well, it's, it's my honor and my pleasure to be involved in this project, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that Charlie was very influential in both of our lives. Um, and, you know, talk about a great man. Um, not only a great writer, but an advocate and someone who uh, uh, probably, you know, did more to promote the wonders of fishing in Colorado than anybody else. And, you know, like you said, I'm a Colorado guy, uh, you know, raised there, went to college over in Gunnison. I, you know, Colorado will always be home. And, and Charlie was the guy that I looked to growing up in Colorado, reading his works in the Denver Post. And, and just, you know, I just loved the man. And when he passed, it was a loss, not just to anglers in Colorado, but to a lot of us who had a really deep connection with him. And so, so this book, like you mentioned, you know, it's kind of the mobile's version of the, uh, the, the red book, it's just going to be a little bit more advanced and uh, maybe the tips might be a bit more detailed. And, um, but I'm, I'm so excited and so thrilled to be a part of it. Thank you. Well, of course. And then thank you. And, you know, I think, I think the thing of it is, is that the little red book opened a lot of doors for me and got me to travel to places. And so I've been to Patagonia, like you're going to, and you know, you learn things. I think, one of the things that's most satisfying for me as an angler or as a hunter or whatever, but to go to one place and see how they do something and then apply it back at your home river. So um, tell us a little bit about what you're going to do down in Patagonia. Well, I'm going with a, a, a buddy of mine who um, 
he's the uh, editor and publisher of Hatch Magazine, which is an online magazine that I occasionally write for. And um, we're going to hit, um, uh, I think, five different estancias, wow. um, big sweeping ranches. And, and, and Kirk, you know this, but your listeners might not know, you know, fishing in in Patagonia is a little bit different in terms of access. You know, we're very lucky here in North America, particularly in the U.S., where we have all of the public lands at our fingertips and we don't have to ask anybody permission to go fishing. In Argentina, all of that, you know, the similar landscape, um, I would say that where I'm going in northern Patagonia is kind of like going to maybe uh, maybe southern Colorado in uh, in, you know, June. Kind of that. That's kind of what I would be comparing it to. Um, but those, though, all that land is privately owned by these uh, estancias, you know, that are two or three or four hundred thousand acres apiece, and all. And these great rivers flow through those estancias in that sort of that high desert um, landscape. And um, so we're going to stay at these ranches. Um, Kirk, you know this as well as anybody, you know, the red wine and the red meat. I mean, I'm just, my hope is that I don't come home with a, uh, with gout. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep walking. Marching up and down those rivers will help. That's right. That, that's right. That, you know, the thing of it is, you're absolutely right. Then you travel far away and you come back. And we are, the United States is the envy of the world in terms of our public land yeah. and our public spaces. And they all um, like to hear stories about bears and they like to hear stories about wide open spaces that public can access and it's worth defending at all costs. Um, and that's something that now to get right down to brass tacks, the other shoe to drop is to admit that you and I work with each other almost every day and we're both yep. under the employ of trout unlimited. And so one of the things that we work on in addition to taking care of the water and keeping things clean and, and mobile, we also try to mobilize people to, make sure that they're protecting their, their right to access public lands and public waters. Yeah, we are indeed lucky to have what we have. And, um, and you know, the it's turned into kind of a lifelong effort for both both you and me. At least, you know, the, la- the later ends of our careers have been spent um, trying to protect those places and, and working to restore great fisheries around the country. But uh, you're right, the U.S. is the envy of the world when it comes to wide open spaces and you know there's no need to you don't have to ask anyone to hit the forest service road and stop and fish wherever you feel like it lastly i want to acknowledge that you're the guy who got me manic about carp fishing and uh, (laughs) we just want to make sure that we set up another time to go fly fishing for carp either here on the south platte in denver or up there in idaho somewhere um so i'm putting you on the spot are you going to take me carp fishing this summer Oh, yeah, always. Um, I, you know, I, I've, I've said this before, and, you know, like I said, we we spend our a lot of our time working to protect trout and trout habitat, but if I had to pick a fish that I could only fish for, a freshwater fish, it would be that, carp. That it would be carp. They're smart, they're wily, they're strong, they fight more than any other fish I know. And then after a fashion, after a while, you know, you're third or fourth fish that you hold up in the sunlight and the yep. sun hits it just right. It's kind of pretty. Which makes us weird, but but that's okay. <laughs> hey, listen, Chris, yeah. I've got to run. I'm at the top of the, of the segment and uh, got to say goodbye, but I want to thank you very, very much for A, showing up early and, and B, 
uh, congratulate you on your great book, and I'm sure we'll be talking again on the radio soon. Thanks, Kirk. Take it easy. Okay, buddy. See ya. All right. Well, Kirk Dieter, again, filling in for Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, and we'll be back in just a little bit.